Last Sabbath, I uh, worked my voiceover. And all week, it's been working on getting back to this point. Hmm. So I will try not to work it over too much. And uh, I'll depend on Ernie to keep it loud enough. Sometimes I get a little carried away, and today already feels like it's going to be one of those days. Uh, Thank you for the music this morning. I was so blessed. Where's your son? Practicing the instrument of heaven. You realize you better get practicing because you don't want to make your debut on the sea of glass and be bad at it. As I read the scriptures, that is the call of the saints to be playing harps on the sea of glass in praise to the Lord. And maybe we all ought to look for an opportunity to figure that one out. I'm praying for a a, a holy inculcation of a gift that I have never in my life before attained. Last week... I said that sin would take you into something deeper than you ever wanted it to be. It would hold you there longer than you ever wanted to be. And that it would cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Today, I want to turn the page a little bit. I want to apply specifically the concept and I want to see if I can bring it to a modern context that makes sense to you and I. First, as soon as that slide gets up, I want to look at Exodus chapter 9. In fact, I'm going to just uh, read you a little bit of it. Beginning in verse 13, the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning. And stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people, that you may know, that you may know, that there is none like me in all the earth. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. By the, by the phrase, the King James phrase, cut off from the earth, eliminated, there would be not an Egyptian left. Then verse 16. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up. Pharaoh, I am the reason you stand here as Pharaoh today. For this reason, I have placed you on the throne. For this reason, I have given you this opportunity. For this reason, this morning, I placed you where you are. That I may show my power to you. And that my name may be declared in all the earth. 
Now, you know the rest of this story, most of you. I think all of you probably. You've at least seen the movie. But have you considered the moment? Have you considered the opportunity that hung there that moment in the balance? The Pharaoh at that moment is about to see the power and authority of the God of heaven. In what happens over the next weeks and days, demonstration after demonstration after demonstration that there is a God in heaven, He's aimed those demonstrations right at the false gods of Egypt, one after another after another, picking them off, demonstrating that it is his authority, not theirs, that counts. One after another, he said to the Pharaoh, no, not the river. No, not the bugs. No, not the cows. No, not you, but me. And with each phrase from God and with each demonstration of his authority, there's an opportunity for the Pharaoh to claim the purpose of God in that moment and accept the reality of God. And in that acceptance, become one of the voices for him. For this purpose, I raised you to the throne to give you this moment, to give you this opportunity. For this moment, I placed you where you are. For this purpose, I placed you on the throne. And today, hanging in the balance of your decision-making, hanging in the balance of your heart's acceptance, hanging in the balance of this moment, is a future where Egypt declares the glory of God or Egypt becomes a demonstration of his authority. You decide. I never thought of it. When I saw Moses walk into Pharaoh's throne room in 1967 Technicolor, and declare, let my people go. I didn't realize, I didn't think of it, I didn't understand that Pharaoh had an opportunity to either praise the Lord or demonstrate his power. He could have praised the Lord in any of those moments. At any one of those points, as the plagues fell, he could have stopped and said, I recognize your God is really God and that rocks and trees and water and bugs aren't really God. In fact, you all know that I'm not really God. And I submit myself to God. And he would have joined the chorus. Israel would have jo- or is- Egypt would have joined the chorus with Israel in proclaiming the name of God. It hung there in that balance. The thing I would like to point out to all of us is that for this purpose applies universally. You're not sitting on the throne of Egypt, but where you are has its own purpose. What you've been given, the gifts that God has placed in your hands, the abilities that you've just naturally had, the spiritual gifts that welled up in you when you gave your heart to Jesus, each one of those things designed a person with a specific tone of praise. 
and with a specific facet of an understanding of God to demonstrate to the world. And every day, as Scott prayed this morning, every day, as he calls to us to say, for this purpose today, I called you. We can either say, yes, Lord, I'm in. Take me where you want to go. Or no, Lord, I got other stuff today to do. The choice is always ours. Day after day, hour after hour, moment after moment. Today I want to walk through a little bit of that picture and maybe come back to somebody who actually accepted the call. But I want to remind you that we've been talking about disciples and discipleship. I want to remind you that we've spoken of Peter and Andrew and Matthew and John and James and on and on. And we've talked about the disciples of Jesus who challenged and challenged and challenged by Jesus finally got it. And so wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do for that purpose, I exist and here I go. Whatever happens, I'm in your hands. My eternity is secure and I will tell the world that Martin Luther and John Calvin and James White and John Harvey Kellogg, yes, John Harvey Kellogg, each spoke to who God was to them and what he'd shared with them. And you can fill in all the names you want. In fact, you can fill in all the names in the room. Pastor Tim talked about the multifaceted picture of Jesus that all of us are. If you remember the end of Pastor Tim's sermon, he shared with us this imagery, this picture of pictures, that as the picture of pictures unfolded and we began to see it, not from up close, not from the examination of the individual, but from the examination of the whole, we recognized that all of those images, all of those pictures represented just one, and that was Jesus. That's the church. That's you. That's me. That's the call of discipleship. That is what it means to be called a disciple of Jesus. Somebody who represents someone else. Somebody who marches at a, to, to the beat of that, that other's drummer. To somebody who walks in a way unique to themselves, but specific to the one they reveal. That's the call. That's the deal. That's the reason. That's the purpose. That's yours. That's mine. Over 20 years ago, I began to talk to this church about the purposes of God, about representing God and God's purposes in the world. Over 20 years ago, we talked about being a church that, led by, that was led by the purposes of God, not the purposes of mankind. Today, I just want to remind you that it's not, church is never a building. Church is always a person. And that buildings just hold, just encapsulate, just wrap their arms around the church. Today there are people watching on the internet. Last week Ernie told me he was watching from Puerto Rico. Those people, though not in this building, are still the church. No matter where they find themselves, they're still the church. The people who choose to follow Jesus, the people who choose to be his disciples, are still the church no matter where they find themselves. If you're sick and you have to be home on a, on a Sabbath morning when you'd like to be worshiping with the church, you are still the church. If you're at work, you're the church. If you're in the store, you're the church. If you're on your deathbed, you're still the church. 
Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, God will send forth praise. No matter where, anywhere, we are still the church. You and I are those guys, those people's successors. They handed the baton and the next person handed the baton and the next person handed the baton and the next person handed the baton and someone handed you the baton. Now if you're here today and you haven't given your heart to Jesus, somebody's trying to hand you the baton. In fact, I'm trying right now. If you have not given your heart to Jesus, here's your baton. Here's your moment. Here's your opportunity. Take it and run with it. Accept Him as your leader, as your Lord, and, as the cover, and accept the covering of His grace and mercy. Be yoked together with Him and let Him walk you all the way home. Take the baton. And become a part of this glorious picture being painted by the body of Christ. How do you find your purpose? So you're sitting there this morning, you're saying, I get that, maybe I'm supposed to be an evangelist, but I'm really not. I'm a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. What is that? How does that work in this whole thing? Okay, everybody gets to be an evangelist. But I want to talk to you about being what God made you in the power and glory of who God made you to be. Um, somebody last week, this week, Michelle actually, told me that I had stopped picking on accountants, so I have to start today again. I was actually asked to stop picking on accountants by somebody. <clears throat> Here's the deal, accountants. It's not that I don't love you and realize you have a great reason for existence. I just don't understand. It's not that I don't understand accounting. I just don't understand why anybody would want to do it. <laughs> and that's from the bottom of my heart. That's just the place where I live. I don't understand why. The, the why of accounting never got to me. It never reached my seat. The teacher tried to tell me, but it never got to me. It, it stopped somewhere in the second or third row. Back row people apparently are, don't get the accounting thing. Because if I found a 50-page spreadsheet and I got down to five cents off, I would be making a donation <laughs> and going home. I don't under the, understand the drive to find that nickel. I don't understand the reason for finding that nickel. Now, I'm really glad you all find the nickel. Because if I were doing it, it'd be, be suddenly having an extra nickel somewhere and then they'd have to figure out where that came from and eventually they'd get back to me and they'd say, what are you doing? You're messing up everything. And they'd probably fire me and I'd get out of that job and go do sales, which I'd probably be good at. But I want to say that God gifted you in that way. That God called you out in that specific way that that need to get the details all finally worked out. That need to make sure your I's have all been dotted and your T's have all been crossed is a gift from God. Now I tell you, accountants are much more loved by fourth grade teachers than preachers. 
I tell you right now. Because your fourth grade teacher is really excited by the fact that you want to know how all those words should be spelled. And that you will stay at your math until you finally figure out why it worked, not just that it worked. And the preachers, they're the ones who keep interrupting class. They're the ones who keep talking to people. They're the ones who keep getting in trouble for disrupting things that they didn't realize they were disrupting. They thought they were contributing. Those of you who may not have a pulpit, but you're a preacher, you know this is true because it happened to you. You spoke out when you weren't supposed to speak out. You said things that you thought made sense because in your head you'd figured it all out really quick and you said, oh, where the teacher's going is this and I should have filled in some gaps because this teacher needs some help. And the teacher didn't want your help. But I am telling you that desire to speak up and speak into someone's out, someone else's life and to talk to strangers and to meet people and to talk to people in line at the grocery store is a gift from God no matter how many times your fourth grade teacher sent you to the office. The way you are built is a design of the hand of the Almighty. I want to take just a quick minute because I know when I talk about having a reason, a purpose for your life, some of you are like, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a mom, I'm, I stay at home, I take care of my kids, how is that a purpose? Well, take, talk to the kid who didn't have a mom at home. Some of you are saying, I retired, I, I quit my accounting job, or I stopped talking to people, I stopped what I was doing before, and, and now as a retired person, I don't really have a purpose. Talk to the preacher who's looking for some help. Here's the deal. Here's how you figure out that purpose. You know, the simplest way to describe this is to describe it with a map. Now, I know maps are, uh, are things of the past, but those of you who are 35 and older, you've seen a map, right? That wasn't electronic. You know what those are, okay? So I want you to pick a place in the country. Just one in your mind. Pick one. Just pick a place. Pick a major city in the country. Got it in your head? Okay, you picked one. Denver, Chicago, Dallas, Phoenix, Los Angeles, San Francisco. You picked one. Pick the place. How do you get there? Southwest. Southwest. You're driving. How do you get to any place you want to go? Well, first you have to know where you're going. You have to know your destination. So what is your destination? You start looking at yourself. You start asking, who am I? How was I designed? What did God give me? What are the gifts that I have? First, the self-examination about what have you been good at all your life? What were you doing in the third grade that you're still doing? What are people looking at you and saying, man, that person's good at that? How, what are those things that are, are clear about who you are? What is that destination of your life that, that, that describes you? Are you leaning more towards the accountant? Or are you learning, leaning more toward the preacher? You find yourself in some other thing that I haven't described. No matter where it is, no matter what it is, start figuring out what that destination, what is it that you look like, and then examine each intersection with that in mind. If I am headed from here to San Francisco, I start going off to the west. If I come to an intersection that goes north or south, I don't turn, I go straight. 
If I come to an intersection that's going more directly toward, this, toward San Francisco, I follow that intersection. Each intersection in life is determined by the destination. Where I go in each intersection of my life is determined by the destination. If you have turned in the wrong place, you know you're lost right now. You know that you're doing something that is not the purpose God called you to. If you have turned the wrong direction in some way, you already know you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong job. You're in the wrong moment. You're doing the wrong thing. You know if you're in the wrong direct, going in the wrong directions because you know what destination you're headed for. You have a feeling about it even if it hasn't reached your head yet. There's a discomfort in your life about, about destination because it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. And so you've turned off somewhere in the wrong way. You're not getting to San Francisco. You're now headed for Berkeley or maybe you're headed for Crescent City or... Maybe you're headed to Chicago and you're going completely the wrong direction. And then make the choices that keep you going in that direction every day. That's what a life filled with the purposes of God looks like. You lay out the purposes of God as your destination. You see how you fit in that picture. You start understanding and the closer you get to it, the clearer it will become. And you head off in that direction. And you just keep going. And at each intersection, you simply make the choice that keeps you going in the direction of that end. Does this make sense to you? Now let me talk to you specifically if you've retired. Because you, when you retire, you think you've thrown off direction. You haven't. You simply are now taking that skill set that has always been there and applying it to a new thing. Maybe several new things. Most of you put things on the shelf that you wanted to do that you felt God might have been leading you to because someone else owned your time. No one owns your time now but you. It's time to start applying to those things the time you now have. It is not time to sit back in your chair and say, I don't have anything to do. No, it's time to say, I have so much more time than I used to have to use for the benefit of God and the glory of His kingdom. Those of you who are too young to have a job, those of you who are in school, you know what your job in school is? To help refine an understanding of what that destination is. That's all you're doing. You're being exposed to lots of different things to try to help you define and refine the destination. Just begin to pick a, paint a picture, to begin to understand. They threw me into a choir class when I was, into a choir tryout when I was in sixth grade. I started singing and they let me do something else. refined my destination. I had a mouth. I could say words. I could speak up. I was not afraid to be in front of people, but singing was not the gift God was shaping in me. They exposed me to an idea that gave clarity to where I was going. That's what school is, you guys. And by the way, for the rest of us, we're never really out of school. You're just not paying for classes anymore. You're paying for penalties of not going to class. And you know it's true. When somebody told you education is always expensive, they were right. Always. Skipping class always costs you. Going to class always benefits you. Go to class. Recognize that your experiences day to day, the intersections that you cross, are constantly refining the destination of God's purposes in your life. So I want to take you to Jeremiah chapter 1. 
Jeremiah is this young man being called to be a prophet of God. You remember the story at all? Do anybody remember Jeremiah the prophet? He's not being called at a great time. He's being called at one of the worst times in Israel's history. The other prophets had been predicting this time. They had been predicting the fall of Israel, the coming of Babylon. They had been predicting that Jerusalem would one day be destroyed. This guy gets called at the crossroads of the moment when that stuff's going to happen. Jeremiah, welcome to the, welcome to the work. I've called you for a, mess, a reason, and uh, it's not going to be fun. Jeremiah chapter 1, I'm going to start in verse 1. The word of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in, the, in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the day of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, and in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem into captivity in the fifth month. Verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, listen to the next word, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. You see, God has all knowledge, past, present, future. So he knew about you before you got here. This is one of my favorite, favorite understandings of the grace and mercy of God is that he, he called me, he called you, knowing all of the bad days we would have, knowing all of the days that would be an embarrassment to the kingdom, he still called you, he still called me. Because of his foreknowledge, his grace expands. His grace expands in the recognition that you and I would in some days be bringing great glory to him and in some days bringing great sadness. And he still called you and he still called me. You're not going to surprise God. Your best day, not a surprise. Your worst day, not a surprise. You wake up on your worst day and God says, good morning, I love you. And you wake up on your best day and God says, good morning, I love you. He offers the same relationship day after day after day. Remember the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sin. They fall away from God. It's changed everything about them. They're afraid of Him. They're in conflict with one another. They're hiding under dresses made of leaves. And God shows up offering the same exact experience that they were offered the day before to walk with them in the cool of the day. The relationship from His side hasn't changed. It's only changed on our side. The God of the universe knows the end from the beginning. And when you were being formed in your mother's womb, you knew about today. And you knew about every other day. And he still called you. And he still gifted you. And he still hopes to see you give glory to him. And he knows the days at work. And he knows the ones that won't. Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, before I, knew, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. And this is the text. This is the, this is the translation in this text. I set you apart. Do you know what the word sanctified means? It means to set you apart. Go back to Genesis. Remember Genesis? God blessed the Sabbath and sanctified it. 
It doesn't mean purified. It means set apart for a holy purpose. Jeremiah, before you were born, I sanctified you. I set you apart for a holy purpose. I set you apart for a holy purpose. I set you apart so that there might be holy purposes in your life. We talk about sanctification in only one way. We often talk, we always talk about sanctification as this transformational process that happens over time where you become more and more like Jesus. And that is true. You walk with Jesus, you become more like Jesus. Straight up, honest and for, for sure. Those of you who are retired, by the way, if you've been walking with Jesus for 40 or 50 years, guess what? You look more like Jesus than you did when you started. And the rest of us need that a lot. We need that a lot. And the youngest of us more than the older of us. But we need those clear, long-lasted pictures of Jesus. I want you to understand the word sanctified every time you read it from now on, New Testament and Old Testament, as to be set apart. Because when you do, it's going to clear up so much of your understanding in Scripture to be set apart. Before you were born, He knew you. And he set you apart. Now, do you have to accept that setting apart? Do you have to accept the purposes of God in your life? Remember the first illustration. Did the Pharaoh accept the purposes of God in his life? Absolutely not. He resisted it all the way to the end. Till the Bible says his heart was hardened. He resisted God until it became so normal to him that his heart was, had no longer had a place for God. Are you following what I'm talking about? So in your life and in my life, in the believer's relationship with God, these things that are setting you apart are the hand of God. He sets you apart for a holy purpose, for a purpose that at the end of your life will bring glory to him in the eyes of the world he so desires to win. Do you get it? Hope so. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4, to th- 4 through 6. There are diversities of gifts. Is that true? If you look down your row, look at the people in your row. There are diversities of faces. Right? Some faces are gifted more than others. Look at heads. Some are so beautiful God uncovers them. Others must still be covered with hair. (laughs) There are diversities of heads. There are diversities of eyes, noses, and mouths. There are diversities among us. Correct. We are benefited by our diversity. We see God differently, each of us having a different perspective on who God is. And as we see those different perspectives, we begin to see God more fully and more clearly. The very diversity of who we are demonstrates the multifaceted way God is. There are diversities of gifts. Is that true? We talked about them at the beginning, just a couple of them. The, 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 the accountant's gift for detail and the preacher's gift for uh, saying sometimes things that need to be said. I did say sometimes. There are diversities of gifts in the church. And that's what makes the church whole. Here's one of the things, folks. If your gifts aren't engaged in the church, the church has a gap. 
If your gifts aren't engaged in the church, the church has a gap. Now, I'm not even necessarily talking about this space. But in the ministry of the kingdom of God, the church has a gap if you're not in it. You know, what, you know what's amazing to me? I'm amazed by the need in the church every day. You know what I wish the church looked like? I wish the church had so many people volunteering. We were struggling to find places to put people. I wish the church had the opportunity to say to people, hey, we have too many people in the kindergarten division. Could you perhaps do beginners? Or would you, would you, would you be comfortable sliding up to primary? Because we, we just have so many volunteers in this space, we don't know what to do with them all. Wouldn't that be cool? But I'm telling you right now, if our gifts are not involved in the work of God in the world, there's a gap in the work of God, and we're the shape of the gap. I don't want to just throw this out there as my recruiting push, but I'd like to be recruiting. I'd like to challenge you to find your place in the puzzle because the picture won't be finished till you're in it. Find your place in the puzzle. Understand who you are, how you fit, what you do, how your, work, how your life really makes sense and start putting that toward Jesus. Starting to put that effort toward Jesus. I shared this story with you before, one of my favorite stories in this church's history, and I'll probably share it, to you, share it with you again until you start sharing it with your friends. There was a guy who used to come to this church a long, long time ago. He was just a visitor. He was here for about six months. He was visiting his daughter. He was from, from Great Britain. He was a golfer. He loved to play golf. Now, nobody ever thinks of golf as a calling from God. Do you think of golf as a calling from God? Does your spouse think of God, wife? Golf as a wife, calling from God. This man knew he was passionate about playing golf. And so he decided that if he was going to be passionate about playing golf, he was going to play golf in a way that honored God and blessed the kingdom. He had a gift of evangelism from God. He decided to marry his gift of evangelism with his dramatic love for golf, and he started doing evangelism on the golf course. Now, have you ever been evangelized on the golf course? People hate it. That's because most of us don't have that gift. This guy was good at it. Most of those of you who are in sales actually have a gift of evangelism, by the way. Most of those of you who are in sales have this gift. If you can persuade somebody to buy a widget, you already know what it means to lead somebody to God. That's what it works. That's how it works. Same thing. What are the benefits that you will gain by what I have to offer. So he starts walking the golf course. He made the commitment that he would never golf in a foursome. You know what a foursome is when you're playing golf? That's a full load. He would only golf in three and less. So if he would go play golf, he'd take two other friends, not, not three. He would go by himself. He would go with a twosome. So there was always somebody joining the group. He met a man on the golf course right over here at Diamond Oaks. And he started, started playing a round of golf. A, a round of golf has a captured person with you for three hours or more. And he just began to talk with them, and they began to share. And as they became friendly, as the time went on, he explained that he was a Christian. And, and they, did, they decided, you know, hey, this was fun. Let's do this again. And so the next time he came out, he, he met this guy again, and they played around the golf again. And they sat, and they talked, and they rode the cart, and they walked along, and he talked. And as time began to move, he began to share with him his relationship with Jesus and the power that it had in his life. And they hit golf balls, and they walked around in the grass, and they talked about Jesus. And it took not too long in that summer before the man who was walking with him started 
started to realize the value of Jesus in his own life and the, the filling that it would provide for him. You see, God doesn't expect you to do things you hate. He just expects you to do things you love to honor him. That man, by the end of that summer, had started attending our church. Now, as soon as his friend went back to England, he quit attending. You know what his friend in England did? He called him. He wrote him letters. He sent him emails. And he said, hey, what about church? How are you doing with church? And he said, have you met anybody in church? Do you know anybody? Have you met the pastor? And we, we began to, com- to correspond. He started calling me and said, the guy showed up with church. Here's what he looks like. This is who he is. And so when he came to church, I started paying attention, noticing that the guy was coming. Long story short, three years later, that man is having surgery. He's coming to church on a fairly regular basis at that point. As he's walking through the foyer, people know him well enough to know his face. And they say, what's wrong, man? You, you look kind of downcast. And he said, I have to have surgery. I'm all by myself. I don't have any family. I don't have anybody to even take me to the hospital. And I'm scared. The lady that happened, happened to be led by the purposes of God and the giftedness that God had placed in her to talk to that man that day was a nurse. Now in this church, you can pretty much fall over any pew and you'll fall on a nurse. It's true, there are a bunch of them in here. That nurse took him aside and grabbed a couple of her friends and she prayed with them. She didn't just pray with them. She committed to find some people to take him to the hospital, which was in Reno. And was in the middle of a stinking winter where the snow was piled up next to the freeway 10 and 12 feet tall. So people committed to go and they did. And they took him to the hospital. And they visited him while he was in the hospital. And they brought him home from the hospital. And he gave his heart to Jesus because the people of God demonstrated the picture of God in such a way that it was so clear to him. That it transformed his destination. He a member of this body. He lived the rest of his life as a member of our church. Passed away in the hand of Jesus because he played golf. You understand what God is doing? Whether you eat or you drink or you play golf or you're an accountant or you're a salesman or you're a carpenter or you're retired or you're a kid in school, do all to the glory of God. He will set you apart for the purposes of his kingdom. He will cover you with his grace. He will even translate your words when they don't make sense. He will use the Holy Spirit to say the thing you said again and again to the person you're talking to to touch their heart in such a way that they will be transformed and they will be in the kingdom. There is There are only two real reasons we're here. One is to worship God and two is to teach somebody else to do the same. So I ask you to look carefully at who you are. Recognize your gifts. Thank God for them. And give your talents and your passions to God. Let him do with them what he wishes. I have only one word left. Do you know what the last commandment in the ten is? Don't covet anybody else's stuff. Right? 
The Apostle Paul said, I didn't even know what sin was until I started to covet, until I read about coveting. I figured I had it all together, that I wasn't sinning at all. And then I read this, this last commandment and realized I was a sinner. Funny to me that he got that far, but whatever. Coveting someone else's gift will short-circuit God's intentions for you. I think perhaps this is placed as the final commandment so that it rings the last note that echoes on through history. Because when you and I wish we were someone else, we miss the blessing of being you and I. When you and I wish we had someone else's gifts, someone else's blessings, we miss out on the blessing of being you and I. There are so many ways that people show the picture of Jesus There are lots that you're going to admire more than you admire your own. But if yours isn't there, if you're trying to be Mary Jane or Frank, you're going to mess up the picture. Just be you. (laughs) We have this phrase that we say today. You be you. You be you. Hey, you, be you. That's a pretty biblical idea. You be you to the glory of God. You just do you really well to the glory of God. You do you at work. You do you at home. You do you at the grocery store. You do you as you're walking around your neighborhood. You do you to the glory of God. Just do you. That's the call on your life and mine. And that is a life filled with such amazing, purposeful living that getting up gets exciting. Getting up every day gets exciting because you get to wake up, look up to heaven and say, I don't know where we're going today, but it's my goal today to glorify my Father. It's my goal today to do me to your glory. To accept that me is okay with you. And we'll glorify you. You do you. To the glory of him. And the kingdom will grow. And people will be in heaven because you did you. Let's pray. Father. It is so easy to fall for all the lies about not being ourselves. It is so easy to try to believe and try to do something other than what you called us to do. We claim your blood as a covering for our sins. We claim our design as your design. We claim our gifts to your glory. We claim our blessings 
to your kingdom's manifestation and a clarity in the picture of who you are for the glorification and the doubling and the growing and the making of disciples. We claim our spiritual gifts. We claim our aptitudes. We claim our skills. We claim the passions that burn within us to be to your honor and glory. We choose to be the very best us so that we might present the very best picture of you in this messed up, confused world. In Jesus' name.
Lord, help us to take the skills and the gifts you've given us and share them liberally, our skills for your glory in the week ahead. We thank you and praise you for this message today, and we pray that you will just help us to listen for your calling in the week ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for worshiping with us at Grace Point today. As I mentioned earlier on, the next part is really the exciting part of sharing how Christ is moving in your life and having others share with you in our discipleship classes. So we hope you'll stay by. The adult classes are here in this room mostly. There's a young adult class out to the left and a quarterly class in the pastor study. All our kids' classes are out this door to my right, except for our youngest kids, they meet in the back. We have some refreshments available right now and take this time to share with each other for a few minutes before classes begin. And we hope you'll stay by and have a blessed Sabbath. God bless.